Hey there, this is Sophie. Before we get started in our deep dive podcast conversation today, I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy our podcast, you might also enjoy some of the other great content we have available for you on YouTube, our blog, and on our website. Check it out, russellinvestments.com. We think about the traditional growth-oriented portfolio, and obviously it's more than two-dimensional, but it's really a trade-off between return expectation and volatility and risk. When income moves into the mix, then it becomes a three-dimensional problem. You, you have the, the return expectation, you have the risk or the volatility, and then what's the income component of that? Beyond risk tolerance, you have to understand the investor's comfort when it comes to, are they truly looking for an income portfolio that they're just pulling out yield, right? Let's not invade the principle. That used to be the old way of thinking about it versus actually putting together a diversified portfolio where you actually occasionally sell some of the securities, right? You have a systematic withdrawal process in place. That may be a better answer in this type of market environment. Welcome to the Helping Advisors podcast by Russell Investments. I'm Sophie Antelgibert, head of North America Portfolio and Business Consulting for Russell Investments Advisor and Intermediary Solutions Business. For most investors, there comes a certain age and stage of life where we look to our investment portfolio to generate a cash flow stream for us. Now, that shift usually happens right around the time of retirement, right? When we need our portfolio to now replace the income that we earned while we were working. Back in the day, that income could be relatively easily sourced overall from investments predominantly in bonds. Over time, however, the yields on U.S. bonds in particular have come down by quite a considerable amount. For instance, back in the early 1980s, so way, way back, kind of almost at the beginning of time, the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index had a yield of around 16%. Now, admittedly, that was somewhat of a high watermark, such that by the early 2000s, that had dropped to around a 6-7% to yield. Today, however, that same index is yielding, wait for it, 1.6%. So investors really need to be looking to other sources of income. Many of them are looking at things like stocks or riskier bonds or even alternative asset classes. Now at the same time, that of course has an impact on the risk profile of their portfolio. So helping clients source income from their portfolios today is not what it used to be. However, to help us sort through all of the different challenges and issues and also opportunities involved when trying to help a client source income in their portfolio, I am excited to be joined today by my colleague, Mike Smith, who is a Senior Consulting Director at Russell Investments. In his almost 30-year tenure in the investments industry, Mike has actually guided the investment committees and trustees of some of the largest pools of capital in constructing portfolios of institutional money managers to achieve very specific outcomes. 
In the last 10 years, he has brought that expertise to our work at Russell Investments with financial professionals, helping them design and construct, or sometimes also select, depending on how they're running their business, portfolios that reflect their clients' goals, circumstances, and preferences. So he is going to help us think through what are the different issues, what are the different questions, what are the different factors that we need to take into account in today's environment and in the potential future environment as we're helping clients source income in their portfolios. So with that, Mike, welcome. It's so great to have you here and to actually be in the studio together with you. We're actually breathing the same air. Yeah, nice change of pace. Thanks for having me, Sophie. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I was wondering, Mike, if we could start maybe sort of from a high, high level initially, I sort of sketched out a little bit of where where markets have been over the last few years, especially markets when we're thinking about them from an income sourcing perspective. But you've been immersed in this topic for much, much longer and in much more detail. So I'm curious from your point of view, what stands out to you today in sort of the income investing landscape and market right now? Yeah, Sophie, you, you did a great job introducing this, right? It's a, it's a very challenging environment at this, this point. As you think about the, the largest components of most U.S. investors' por- portfolios, right, they're just not delivering the income that we've come to expect over, over the years. You, you think about bonds, and bonds the primary source of, of income in, in most, if not all, all portfolios, right? Well, interest rates are, are, are so low compared to what they have been historically, and, and most people, I think, recognize that and have picked up on that. But the thing that may slip by many investors is then this, this notion of the credit spread relative to that low treasury yield is really at historical lows as, as well. And so that additional yield that you've been re- rewarded with in your fixed income portfolio, especially if you were willing to take a little bit more risk, just isn't isn't there today. So you have to start thinking about other pieces of the portfolio to generate some some income. But then you, you stocks, right? You mentioned you turn to stocks and dividends are, are at a historical lows too compared to what they were just a few few years ago. And so, you know, that that naive just a 50-50 blend between stocks and bonds of it which 18 months ago was yielding 3 to 4%. It's only yielding about a percent and a half today, right? And so, ouch, right? that's just not going to pay, pay the bills in, in retirement. So, so investors really have to start thinking a little bit more outside the box. And that's really driving probably what a lot of us are seeing and hearing today. I don't, I don't know. You probably get a lot of the same emails that I get each day about webcasts, WebExes touting the next great income product. A lot of these income products are really complex and, and really, really complicated. It's not just a, a stocks and bond solution, but that's challenging too, right? Because we traditionally have thought of income-oriented portfolios as being maybe a little bit more, more conservative, but now they're introducing these topics that are complex and that they're hard to understand. So how do you how do you make that work? So a little bit of a long-winded response. I'm sorry to your original question, but it's it's just challenging out there today. It's a tough market for in- income investors. Well, and you bring up an interesting point where on the one hand, for income investing, because of typically the life stage that that type of investor is in, there has historically been sort of a, a preference for keeping that portfolio structure relatively simple and straightforward, not as opaque and not as multi-layered and multifaceted 
at the same time, the traditional sources of income that, <laughs> that we were looking for aren't delivering. And so we need to diversify more. Oftentimes, diversification ends up being sort of a good solution for things. But it sounds like diversification is not all created equal either. Of course, diversification doesn't protect against losses and, and all of that. But even still, it sounds like there might be some additional things to look at when we're diversifying. So if I'm thinking now with my advisor hat on, Mike, what would you say that if I was putting together an income portfolio for my investor client, what would I need to know about the client? What do I need to know about their goals and their circumstances and their preferences? Which questions do I need to ask them and what details do I need to know about to know what type of income portfolio should I be putting together for them? Well, as you know, we love that approach, right? When we're trying to marry an investment objectives with investment solutions based upon that GPC, your goals, preferences, and, and circumstances. And as an advisor working with your clients, your, your investors, if you know those aspects of their life and, and their financial goals, it'll help you ask the right questions, or at least the questions we think you need to ask to help them put together an income solution that is best fit for their needs. And it'll take you right down that path of identifying things like risk tolerance. To generate a certain level of risk historically, risk tolerance wasn't maybe one of the primary questions you had to think about. You mentioned it earlier, right? If you just go back looking at, at the broad bond fixed income market, and what those bonds have been yielding over time for a relatively low risk portfolio, you could generate five, six, seven, eight percent. Well, that's just not a not an option today, it's right? Not a thing anymore. Not <laughs> a thing anymore. Maybe someday down the road, but again, for the foreseeable future, likely not the case. So, really, have to delve into that and determine what that trade-off is between income and what they think of as as really risk today. Maybe different than what it was five, ten years ago. Well, and we also know, I mean, to your point, we know that the definition of risk and the feeling of risk that people have will vary over time. Certainly. So, you know, market volatility hits and suddenly our completely aggressive investor who felt ready for anything is not feeling so ready anymore for what real volatility actually feels and does to a portfolio. So risk tolerance is also a bit of a squishy thing oh. to... It's hard to pin down. Oh, exactly. It's hard enough to get your arms around that in more of a normal market environment. In this unusual environment, it's even more difficult at that, that stage. So if you can get your arms around risk tolerance, and again, going back to the GPC way of thinking about establishing individual client circumstances, beyond risk tolerance, you have to get a certain level of comfort or understand the investor's comfort when it comes to are they truly looking for an income portfolio that they're just pulling out yield, right? Let's not invade the principle. That used to be the old way of thinking about it versus actually putting together a diversified portfolio where you actually occasionally sell some of the securities, right? You have a systematic withdrawal process in place. That may be a better answer in this type of market environment. But if the end investor is not comfortable with that and they still have the old mindset of let's not invade the principal, we have to you know, get some comfort level with that and see where the investor stands relative to that type of a process for generating income. Oh, interesting. So thinking about it of, okay, so back in the day, we used to only source income or thought of it only as, as sort of a yield or dividend or something like that. Whereas 
there is actually another way to get income from a portfolio is to simply sell some of the positions in the portfolio and generate cash that way. But as you're saying, that can feel like, okay, but now you're now you're invading the principal. You're touching the principal. You're actually selling down a portfolio as opposed to just taking the yield off of it or, you know, taking the cash flows from it in that yeah. way. A different type of view on, on risk, right? If you think about it from an ivory tower perspective, a lot of the research will suggest that may be a better method to go about that creating systematic income. Withdrawal. That systematic withdrawal versus the old clipping coupons and not invading the principal. But again, depending on the mindset of the investor, that really helps to drive what's the appropriate method to, to pursue at that point. So we've talked about risk tolerance being an important thing to know about our client and that being both the conservative versus aggressive type of risk tolerance, but also the what is their perspective on yield versus systematic withdrawal of the total return. What else do I need to be thinking about as I'm putting together a win, hopefully winning income portfolio for my clients? Yes, hopefully winning. Top of mind taxes. Think about it's hard to click on the internet or turn on the news and not, not see discussions about taxes and most expecting taxes to go go up, right? And in a world of higher taxes, lower interest rates, not a great combination for people looking to pull yield out of a, out of portfolio or income out of portfolio. So that's a real critical component going forward, thinking about the impact of taxes on ultimately what the investor keeps out of that portfolio in the form of after-tax income. So there, it's important for me to know what is their tax rate, both at a federal and potentially, as it may apply, a state level, but presumably also thinking about what are the differential tax rates on different types of portfolio return writ large. Oh, exactly. That's critical. You can really put together some different profiles of investment solutions with really different tax outlooks. And even on top of that, just what is the end investor's view on paying taxes, right? As we as we know, certain investors, that is the last thing they want to do, even unfortunately at the, the risk of leaving some return on, on the table, versus those that have a true after-tax return perspective and can see the bigger picture. Ultimately, though, the solution's not right if the investor is not comfortable with it. So we really need to take their, their view of taxes in into consideration. Okay. No, that that makes sense. And it wouldn't be a Russell Investments podcast if we didn't talk about taxes. So I'm glad we're you know, 20 minutes into this and we've already got it. So that that's good. <laughs> what else do I need to think about? These things don't come for free. So I'm assuming at some point we're going to talk about fees and the budget or, or that sort of thing as well. Fees, certainly another hot issue when it comes to investing, right? If you look at some of the in industry materials out there, if fees aren't in the first line, they're in the second line of the article. And a lot of these income-oriented products, especially when you start getting into some of the more complex ones that are being pushed out, promoted today, they tend to come at a higher cost as well. And so thinking about the impact on, on of fees, again, after tax, after fee income of the portfolio is, is certainly critical to the equation when, when you're putting together a solution with an income income orientation. And is there anything more detailed that we need to think about fees? Is it simply the fee of the product sort of, you know, comparing one product versus another product and whichever one has a lower fee might be more attractive. Do I need to think about fees differently when it comes to income? Yeah, no, fees can really play a role from two different aspects. One thing that not everybody realizes that from a mutual fund, the fee actually gets pulled out 
relative to the income. So the, the fee on the mutual fund or the ETF actually gets subtracted from the income. So it impacts the, the income that actually gets paid out. So that's one aspect. But then, then also there's this aspect of the, the trade-off in higher fee, higher potential income that a lot of these products are, are offering as well. The only certainty you know in that equation is the fee that you're paying. <laughs> that, that bill will definitely arise, yes, even if the return might not. May or may, may you not. may or may not get that income, right? There's that promise of that income out there, but market circumstances, environments do, do change. So again, what's your comfort level in regard to paying higher fees for a hopefully higher income producing solution? Okay. Wow. A lot of different factors to think about there already. And then you've mentioned, especially with some of the newer you know, solutions, income solutions that are coming out, or as we're trying as an industry together, right, to come up with how do we build portfolios that can deliver this income. Sometimes it can mean that we're diversifying and we're diversifying a lot. And that diversification and the individual underlying products can sometimes have different levels of transparency. To what extent should I be thinking about that? Yeah, another trade-off, right? We're making a lot of trade-offs when it comes to putting together these income solutions. A lot of the, the newer, more complex income solutions that are promising a little bit higher income compared to what you could get from a stock and bond portfolio also deliver a certain level of complexity that are often very difficult to understand. You, you mentioned it, and this dates me a little bit. I've been in the industry almost 30 years, and so I've seen a lot. A lot of these new products are pretty complex and I don't fully understand them, which probably means your end investor is not going to understand them. So, and at the same time, many of them don't have the transparency of what a typical investor is used to, right? You can't just go out to a, a public site and see what's being held in, in that portfolio. And so, again, going back to this notion that income-oriented solutions have always been a little bit more conservative-based, a little bit more straightforward, when are you ready to make that trade-off? conservative, straightforward, doesn't necessarily jive with complex and lack of transparency. So it's just another risk variable or another factor that you have to be comfortable with in regard to making that trade-off between reaching for higher income versus taking what's in the market today. And is liquidity a concern? I mean, I know you, you mentioned sort of mutual funds at one point or even individual bonds or individual stocks or something where those overall are, are really quite liquid in the grand scheme of, of liquidity. I know some of the newer solutions sometimes have some lockup periods or that sort of thing. So presumably, again, if I'm an advisor talking to an, a client trying to help them find a good investment solution for their income challenge, liquidity would be something that I would want to ask my clients about there? Certainly, Sophie. It's something, yeah. And illiquidity is not good or bad, but it is a factor in these these solutions. And it's a circumstance, it, it's a to, circumstance consider to consider. It's a circumstance to consider, right? It's because it's illiquidity is really not being able to get your money when you want it. And for some investors, that's a fine solution. For other investors, they don't want any any part of that, right? Again, getting back to this conservative nature of income portfolios traditionally, Introducing a, a factor where you can't go out and get your money when you want it can be really complicated and, and really a, a non-starter for certain investors. And so, again, a lot of these new solutions introducing lack of transparency, complexity, and illiquidity for that higher promise of income, great to think about, looks great on paper, two years down the road, not always the best investment once you're in it. So, again, something to think about there. Okay. 
So we have a lot of different facets that we should be considering here, a lot of different trade-offs, as you so politely put it for us, Mike. So we have the risk tolerance, we have yield versus systematic withdrawal, we have the tax rates, we have the fee budgets, we have transparency and liquidity. Assuming that I have just done deep discovery with my client, I've gotten a handle on what their preferences are around these issues, what their circumstances are that are important, and maybe also, you know, what their specific goal is. Like, is there a target number? Is there a must-have? Is there a like-to-have scenario there and prioritization? Now that I'm an advisor that is well-equipped and I have all this information from my client, how does or should that influence my portfolio design and construction? How do I put all of those words and feelings and emotions and, but I want, language into an asset allocation and into actually selecting a solution or combining different solutions? Yeah, it, it does take an additional I think there's an additional step in this this process, right? We think about the traditional growth-oriented portfolio. Obviously, it's more than two-dimensional, but it's really a trade-off between return expectation and volatility and risk, right? It's this, this tension between those two. When income moves into the mix, then it becomes a three-dimensional problem, right? You, you have the, the return expectation, you have the risk or the volatility, and then what's the income component of that as well? And so that risk tolerance definition changes in the income solution where the income component becomes a much bigger part of that definition of risk and how you define risk. And again, for you, Sophie, it might be one thing. For me, it might be something something else, right? The risk of taking too much income and, and maybe the portfolio winds down too quickly if we're if we're in retirement or not being able to take enough income and not meeting those basic needs of, of, of spending once you're in that, that retirement stage. So it does take on another bit of complexity. And that's another thing I think that an advisor has to work through if they're working with an investor or an investor has to work through on their, their own to determine on what is that real primary risk catalyst that they're trying to satisfy and, and mix. Because in any portfolio, the ability to sleep at night is pretty important to the investor. And so this is just another another factor of risk to consider to make it a little bit more of a complex issue than just not that a growth portfolio is simple, but it just takes on another dimension. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, in the growth portfolio, it's always nice to have more money. But with an income portfolio, it's like, well, there's certain things that these are not nice to have. These are must haves. We have bills to pay at the end of the month and we're relying on the portfolio. So I can see how risk is, is definitely more important there. Hey, we're just going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly. Hey, this is Maria. Before we get back to the podcast, I want you to think about two dates, December 31st and April 15th. On December 31st, your client's investments have grossed all they could for the year. That's the amount they earned, right? But April 15th, tax day, that's the day that determines how much your investors get to keep. If you've already switched your investors to a Russell Investments tax managed strategy, the numbers from those two dates may be the same. You could visit russellinvestments.com right now to learn more about that. But if you haven't managed for tax drag, then April 15th can be, well, a drag. People don't like drags. People like tax smart investing. And donuts. People also like donuts. And we're back. We talked about the taxes and stuff. So how do those tax considerations, how and when do they factor into my process now? 
certainly for taxable accounts. You, you need to think about sensitivity to, to tax rates, the, the tax brackets that the, the investor happens to be in. And for those taxable assets, for yield, for income, municipal bonds, always a starting spot, right? It, it, there's certainly that after-tax advantage of the municipal bonds. But today, with yields being where, where they're at and tax rates being where they're at, you really need to do the math to make sure that that after-tax income of the municipal bonds is actually higher than what it is on the taxable bonds because there has been some spread, and depending on which tax bracket you, you happen to be in, can make a difference between what is the better answer for you on an after-tax basis, whether it is the muni bond portfolio or is it the taxable bond portfolio. And so, so again, it adds another layer of complexity to, to this income solution challenge that we're looking at today. Yeah, that's interesting. It feels like there's so many aspects right now where what used to be held as true and, you know, as sort of gospel in yeah. income investing is slowly being eroded or or at least you have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. Sometimes it still applies for this scenario and sometimes it just it won't. And so you have to start from scratch and kind of take everything into account. No, very true. Very true. And just thinking and staying with that notion of, of taxes and referencing something that we talked about a little bit earlier is whether or not a, a systematic withdrawal type of income process or solution makes more sense than a yield-oriented solution. Because as you think about income coming off of bonds, we know that's taxed at or ordinary income rates for investors. Where with a systematic withdrawal type of process, you can actually maybe go with long-term capital gains as you're selling down part of the portfolio and creating the, the cash flow or the income stream from those, those sales. So the after-tax income may be superior for an investor in that type of scenario. Because the tax on the long-term gains, the tax bracket on the long-term gains is lower than it is on on the dividends. At the, uh, at the, the income on the bonds, ordinary. correct. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes, is, on the bonds. Yeah. Yes. And, and so, again, just a number of different factors that they don't muddy the water, but they make it a little bit more of a complex portfolio construction process because there are just more factors to consider. Interesting. The yield versus total return. How do I incorporate that into my decision-making process? And also what happens if I maybe want to counsel my client into something they're not as, like that I truly believe as a professional that they should seriously consider going with the option that they might not have considered initially or right now feel somewhat stubbornly opposed to, but that, again, I as a professional, no, understanding all these different facets, feel quite strongly about what do I do in that situation? Yeah, no, good question, Sophie. It may be a little bit easier to have that conversation today. Maybe one silver lining around these lower interest rates is that those two portfolios maybe look a little bit more alike than they have in the past. Because if you think about the old world where, where fixed income portfolios were yielding much more than equity portfolios, right? And so for that income portfolio focusing on yield, heavily packed into bonds, right? 70, 80%, and maybe just a little bit of, of equity. Well, in today's world where the yield on stocks is fairly comparable to what's being produced income-wise on bonds, you can see a portfolio that's much more a 50-50, 60-40, 40-60 type of blend. So maybe we're starting from a spot that is, is more comparable than it has been in the past. So maybe that 
makes the conversation a little bit easier. And then you can walk through some of the differences between those two portfolios and what one may look like versus what the other may look like and the, the benefits of those two different strategies. That's helpful. Are there any other asset classes in particular that you would, having done this also for large institutions, that you would consider looking at that we haven't traditionally considered and yet that might fall closer to a traditional thing than something that is highly complex. Yeah, yeah, that's that's I think that's a good point too. Let's let's limit this to more the traditional stocks, bonds, equities, real assets, things that an investor can find in a mutual fund or an ETF that, that might that feel more familiar more to them, familiar. especially from a growth-oriented portfolio. Now it's yes, the investment challenge is different, but does that mean that I need to change everything? Like do I need to learn an entire new investment landscape or do some of those tools and building blocks still apply? Yeah, some of those tools, many of those tools and building blocks still apply. There's some, I don't want to say simple, but some straightforward things. When, you, when you're looking at, say, equity exposure, within your equity exposure, probably want to lean a little bit more on international. International stocks actually yield about a percent more than U.S. stocks. Or they historically have. They historically have, and they're still yielding a little bit more, right? And from a relative perspective, when you look at U.S. equity, maybe a more large cap than you normally would have relative to small cap. There's more yield there, right? There's more dividend yield in large cap stocks. In international stocks, more in developed, less in emerging. Now, that leaves potentially a little bit of return on the table, Mm -hmm. right? Because small cap stocks, emerging market stocks tend to return a little bit more. But if you're putting together a yield-oriented portfolio, you might might lean a little bit more into that that space. And if risk risk tolerance is a consideration, that also... Always in the background, right? Always have to have that as, again, if if the investor is not comfortable with the portfolio, doesn't sleep well at night, it's not a good solution for for them. So yeah, very good point, Sophie. When you think about some other areas that many investors don't include today that that are great sources for an income-oriented portfolio, real assets, things like global infrastructure, global REITs, they tend to have, they are still growth-oriented assets, but have a much larger component of their their return expectation coming from the income side of the return made up of, you know, increase in price, yield, a lot more yield for global REITs, global infrastructure. And we think those are, are, are strong components to have within an income solution. And if we're thinking about putting together an income solution, we will have much higher allocations to those two segments of the marketplace than we would for a typical growth-oriented portfolio. Yeah. Okay. So depending on the client's circumstances, preferences, real assets can also be good solutions. That's helpful. And then at least it sounds to me what sounds helpful about that is that even as an income investor, or especially as an income investor, I still have access to a diversified portfolio that there is some comfort that many investors can feel from diversification and from different sources of income that are working complementary to each other in different market environments. Yeah, no, a lot of benefit from that, that additional diversification of incomes and return sources that we think will serve people well. Mike, I have another question with my advisor hat on. So we've gone through a lot of sort of complex and intricate details here. I'm wondering, I don't have only one income-seeking client. And we've talked about how every client's goals, circumstances, and preferences make them unique and special and, you know, individual snowflakes. At the same time, I'm an advisor who's also trying to run a business. How do I create scale 
if I can't focus on all of the preferences and circumstances, which ones would you say, okay, but these are non-negotiable, like you really need to pay attention to these, or these will help you be able to create scale, and then you can customize on these other factors instead. How would you guide me along that thought process? Well, you hit on it. There's certain things you just you need to know. You you have to know to come up with a solution that that fits well with the investor's objectives. And we've touched on all of these already. Their risk tolerance certainly critical, and that this additional dimension of income and how that fits in. Time horizon we haven't talked as much about, but that goes hand in hand with your risk tolerance for almost any investor. And so we we do need to understand that. Then the things that we talked about earlier, the the tax sensitivity. And the sensitivity to the invasion of, of principle. Are they looking for a solution that is just yield-based, or are they actually comfortable with setting up a systematic withdrawal process that may create even a better portfolio and a better outcome for them? And so getting those nailed, nailed down for the individual clients that you are working with, it's just critical to, to being successful in this, in this area. Now, the ability to customize that for each and every client, that's a big lift, and that could be really hard to do. The suggestion from our end is probably you need to create a, probably a set of income-oriented models, right, that you can, you can manage and leverage across that client base. That doesn't mean that you're going to have 100 different models. That's just something that's uh, impossible for anyone. No one has enough time in their day to, to do that. But you will have to establish a, a set. Maybe that's three models. Maybe that's five models, depending on your, your, your client base, that will hit on a wide range of objectives, wide range of, of risk tolerances to, to accomplish those, those, those goals. So we think, again, and when it comes to, to trying to leverage this, it's impossible to manage a hundred different portfolios, but with a handful of three, five, seven different models, you can get most of the way there and meet those financial out- outcomes that your clients are looking for. I, I like that idea of the models, especially, and being able to sort of synthesize, all right, so what are what are the commonalities among my clients here so that I can make this more manageable and more scalable? Now, assuming I've listened to all of this, Mike, and I'm beginning to feel like as much as I'm excited about this, I also feel a bit overwhelmed at the prospect of having to like even putting together three or five models, like all of the different factors that you mentioned that I need to take into account and the amount of understanding I need to have of my clients to even be able to to know, okay, so which models should I create and how do I do that? And what if the market moves and now I have to decide, like I'm the one, the buck stops with me. I have to decide if I'm going to make changes. If I'm not super sold or confident or that's just not my jam. I I don't want to focus on that right now. I want to be focusing on spending time with clients. I want to focus on bringing in new clients and prospecting and business development, managing my team. If I was going to seek a partner, hypothetically, in this space that could help me with income solutions, what would you say, and again, you've worked with a lot of advisors, you've worked with institutional clients that are seeking guidance and counseling in these areas, in your experience, what are what are they looking for? What should I, as an advisor, be looking for in a partner there? What's important before I select a partner that's going to help me and my clients get to where they want to get to from an income perspective? 
That's a great question, Sophie. It re- really is. There is a lot of opportunity to partner with folks out there that are, are managing professional money managers that are managing models out there. Some are really good. Some are not so good, right? You obviously need a, a fit with your business and your personality and how you like to work. We have some thoughts on the topic and, and some things that we think advisors should look for if they're looking to partner with an organization or multiple organizations to provide investment solutions. If we're talking about models for income portfolios, there there are a few things that we, we think you should seek out. Right? Just to begin with, you, you want to see a demonstrated resources and, and capabilities dedicated to building and, ma- and managing investment models. Right, This, this notion of building models is, is somewhat of a new concept to the industry. Now, there's some firms that have been doing it for 30 some some years. There's other firms that haven't been doing it for 30 weeks. So there are some choices out there, but you want to see some experience, some dedicated resources that have been working in this, this space for a while. And those that have been creating not just in income models, but maybe a range of, of models, right? Recognizing that maybe eventually you want to work with providers in more areas than just, just income, right? Maybe for your growth portfolios, or maybe for your taxable assets. It'd be great if you, you identify a firm that's got a range of capabilities in that space. And to have those capabilities or to have that experience, you're, you're likely going to see an organization that has some experience in the asset allocation process, right? That's certainly key. But then structuring individual asset class exposures within those uh, models, right? Because they're going to be diversified, asset-allocated models. Hopefully, you're going to have exposure to non-U.S. equity, U.S. equity, real assets like we talked about earlier, different flavors of of fixed income. And so you want to see some demonstrated experience in those areas as as well. The second point I I think that's, that's critical is an ability and willingness to include non-proprietary solutions, within the mix. There are a lot of great money management firms out there that have a lot of great expertise, but none of them are the best in all areas. There's got to, there needs to be some, some rec- recognition that as some organizations are better for equity. Some organizations are better for fixed income. Some organizations are better putting together income solutions. You want to see the willingness to work with the best of the best, for lack of a better term. So I think that's important. Typically, models tend to be a little bit more strategic. And what we've seen over time is those strategic models do tend to be the more successful, the type of models that investors can stick with over, over time. You know, a little bit of tactical on the margin is, is, is great. But I think in most instances, you're probably, again, focusing on organizations that have a greater emphasis and focus on that strategic asset allocation as opposed to the, the the tactical, which we're starting to see a little bit more of out there at this point. And then just just a just a couple others. Beyond the investment solution, beyond the the models, you want to work with an organization that's going to support you and and your business as as an advisor. And you you outlined a lot of the things that advisors need to do that go beyond just managing a, a portfolio from a client servicing standpoint or just you know collateral that supports your your, your materials. I, I think you need to find an organization that's going to support you from from that end as well. And then finally and last but probably not least, an ongoing commitment to this model business. As I, as I mentioned earlier, there are organizations that have been 
putting together models for over 30 years out there. There are organizations that have been doing it for less than 30 weeks, right? You want to see a demonstrated ability example that this is a critical part of their their business and it's going to be around for a long time. The last thing you want to do is partner up with someone and have them be gone in, in 12 months, right? This is important that they're going to be around and a going concern to help you continue to grow your business. Terrific. You definitely persuaded me, Mike, of many things, of the fact that income investing is not what it used to be, that putting together a hopefully winning an income portfolio does involve a lot of trade-offs. We said the word trade-offs many times in this conversation. We're weighing things like fees, we're weighing things like tax rates and tax brackets and income levels and is am I looking for yield? Am I looking for systematic withdrawal? How do I feel about about risk tolerance and a, a lot of different factors. If folks have additional questions, they know where to come. Um, <laughs> we are here at Russell Investments and certainly our regional directors in the field and in everybody's regions are there to help. So thank you very much, Mike, for your time and thank you all for listening. This podcast episode was recorded on October 21st, 2021 in Seattle, Washington.